The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. You know the Ukrainian flag with the yellow on the bottom and the blue on the top? That represents the fields of sunflower plants and the blue of the big blue Ukrainian sky. The reason I think it's useful as a way to talk about the problems we're having in the global economy right now with shortages of food and inflation and in particular feedback loops is because following the path of that sunflower oil and seed that was being produced in Ukraine and is now not gives you an idea of the breadth and the depth of the problems we now have in the global economy that are causing inflation and then inflation upon that inflation and bizarre interactions between things you'd never expect that are at least partly due to the Ukraine war but are feeding into broader inflationary pressures that are making things sticky. I'm Bernard Hickey and this week on When the Facts Change, I'm going to try and dive deep and peel back the layers in the inflation that we're seeing at the moment that's higher than expected, it's lasted longer than expected, and is becoming stickier than expected. I'll talk to Mary Jo Vergara, who is KiwiBank's economist, about why this inflation has just cropped up and is staying for much longer than we expected, what central banks are doing about it, and how long it might take to get rid of some of this sticky inflation. But let's start with the sunflower seeds. So fields of sunflowers um, waving in the, in the breeze and being farmed and then exported through the Black Sea, through the Straits of the Dardanelles and into the Middle East, along with massive crops of wheat, not just from Ukraine, but from Russia. And now, of course, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a lot of that farming has stopped, But more importantly, the exports of that wheat and sunflower from those Black Sea ports into the Mediterranean has stopped. And that's pushed up prices of wheat and, of course, sunflower oil. Now, that's important because a lot of that wheat goes into those countries that ring the Mediterranean, in particular North Africa, Algeria, Libya, Ethiopia, and, of course, Egypt are the biggest consumers of that wheat and quite vulnerable to big increases in wheat prices. But there's another feedback loop at work here too. Because with the sanctions on Russia that have restricted oil and gas supplies from Russia, you're starting to see it flow into another part of the food supply chain, and that is fertilizer. Also, Russia is the world's second largest producer of potash, which is a type of salt that's mined and that is used to increase potassium for a lot of crops. So the combination of higher fertilizer prices, which of course are linked to gas because gas is used to make ammonia, which is the fertilizer used around the world, 
means that not only do you have a spike in food prices this year, and not just in wheat because it spreads out across the complex of various grains, but then that spills over into higher beef and pork and uh, dairy prices because, of course, in the Northern Hemisphere, a lot of that protein is produced in feedlots where they're not eating grass, they're eating grains of some form or another. And then on top of that, in the years to come, because there's not enough fertilizer or it's more expensive, not enough potash, that starts to affect crops in the future. And so futures prices for food start to uh, feed on each other and you get a negative feedback loop. But it's not the only negative feedback loop that is embedding inflation into the global economy and uh, by extension into ours. The combination of COVID-19 and the problems with the Ukraine war on top of China's attempt to eliminate COVID in the same way that we did, but they can do it as a non-democracy in the way that we couldn't, has meant there's been all sorts of snarl-ups in the global supply chain. We talk about that with Mary Jo Vergara and how that's flowing through into higher transport costs. And then there is the feedback loops that come from higher interest rates. Now, we know that the Reserve Bank here got going with higher interest rates in October last year. That fed through into higher mortgage rates. And most economists expect the Reserve Bank to continue to raise the official cash rate from about 2% now to about 35 maybe even 3.9% sometime next year. Now, that will flow through into lower house prices and is designed to slow down the economy and slow down local demand, reduce some of that wealth effect, which is pushing up prices of things like building materials and construction labour costs. However, there are some feedback loops here. For example, for those people who are renting, the landlords now find themselves having to pay more for the mortgage. So some of them will, in a mechanical way, pass that on in the form of higher rents. And we've certainly seen the effects of the government's move to remove interest costs as an element in reducing tax bills. That has increased the costs for landlords and also reduced the incentives to build more houses, which should be the natural economic response to higher rents. But that's not happening at the moment, in part because higher interest rates make it much harder to finance new housing supply, new apartments, new townhouses. And so that's one of the negative feedback loops which make prices sticky. So rents go up, but they don't necessarily trigger a supply response that brings rents down. Because of that as well, you start to see people in the construction sector, and we've already seen it in the last three months, there's been 93 smaller construction firms go bust, in part because they're unable to get the finance they need and to get the building materials they need because of this inflation and because of these higher mortgage rates. And then the final feedback loop that we talk about in this week's episode with Mary Jo Vergara is the wage and price feedback loop. There's been a lot of talk about wage price spirals from the 1970s being repeated this time around. I think that's less likely in part because union penetration into the private sector, not just here but overseas, is much lower. And it's much harder to implement big, widespread, all-at-one-time wage increases in the way that you could in the 70s with big arbitration of awards. The fair pay agreements 
look to try and replicate some of that, but they're not in there yet. However, we are starting to see some of the wage inflation that flows on from the increase in price inflation. And because we've got a very tight labour market with not too many uh, migrant workers coming in at the moment, and lots of New Zealanders, of course, who've been stuck here for a couple of years, young New Zealanders looking to go overseas for their overseas experience, or finding it difficult with high house prices to stay here with their current levels of wages. And with some flexibility, um, in particularly in the markets between Australia and New Zealand, it, they are, act in a way as one labour market, which means you've got demand at higher wages from Australia sucking people out of the economy as well and out of the labour market here. That means you're starting to see some interesting effects around sign-on bonuses and changes to payments, which mean that people may get paid for 40 hours but only work for 30 hours, or they may work from home for three days a week instead of five days a week, which reduces their commuting time, which means, in effect, they're getting a higher real wage. And that is one of the interesting factors here, that you're starting to see those feedback loops from higher wages and conditions feedback into prices, in particular in those areas where companies who are selling goods and services in New Zealand have market power. That's one of the unknown effects, the unknown sources of stickiness in our inflation at the moment. We can see and feel it in areas like supermarkets, where of course the recently completed market study has found that the foodstuffs and countdown duopoly has been running prices higher than they otherwise would. And at a time of high inflation and at a time when those companies have market power, they're able to easily push through wage increases and other cost increases with a little bit extra to through in the form of higher inflation. So we are now seeing an inflation outbreak, particularly in the last year, that is now being powered and is in many ways powering itself with a bunch of feedback loops that is making this inflation stickier. It's a bit like a weed that grows the roots under the concrete. And to try and dig out the weed, we have to break up the concrete. And that's what we're seeing at the moment with central banks around the world increasingly looking to hike interest rates much faster than we all expected because the inflation is becoming embedded. Those feedback loops are becoming more developed. And we see that in particular with the desperation now to try and open up those trade routes, those shipping lanes that come out of the Ukraine and Russia through the Black Sea, through the Dardanelles, past Gallipoli. We now understand why it's such a strategic stretch of water that uh, even as early as World War I, there was a huge contest for that land involving New Zealand invading Gallipoli. However, that desperation to try and turn off these feedback loops is leading to all sorts of really interesting geopolitical moves. For example, just quietly, the United States has been telling banks and traders to allow through Russian fertilizer and potash exports, even though they've been sanctioned because of the negative feedback loops upon feedback loops on food prices that are going to feed through into political disputes and problems that in their own way restrict supply and mess with supply chains. good example of that is just in the last day, we've seen Libyan oil production affected badly by a bunch of political protests that 
reduction in Libyan oil production has seen the oil price rise. And now we're seeing petrol prices well above $3 a litre here in New Zealand too. That's this week on When the Facts Change, the stickiness and the negative feedback loops inside inflation. So now to talk about this inflation and those feedback loops and stickiness, we talk to Mary Jo Vergara, an economist at KiwiBank. So Mary Jo, where on earth has this inflation spike come from? It's, it feels like it's coming from everywhere, really. Um, you know, we've got imported inflation, so uh, food and fuel prices are rising. But then also we're more concerned about this domestically generated inflation, the fact that demand in the economy continues to outstrip supply, and that imbalances um, driving up prices as well. So let's unpack some of this stuff. We've got the food prices that have risen in part because of the Ukraine war, but actually they've been rising before that um, with droughts in various places. And, and then, of course, we've got the Ukraine war. Russia has been taken out of the market, or at least some of its oil has been taken out of the market. What else is going on here that means that energy inflation and food inflation has transferred through to New Zealand? Yeah, you're right. So initially, the spike in inflation that we saw was largely driven by tradables inflation, which we know is imported inflation. So we had very strong dairy prices and food prices during sort of that lockdown period at the beginning of sort of 2020, 2021, um, because, and we were big um, exporters of these um, of these uh, goods. So we had pretty favorable dairy prices, but that didn't mean that prices were rising in terms of food and fuel. But then we've seen since January, obviously, the war in Ukraine um, that really shocked commodity prices, given that Russia is such a big exporter of energy, uh, ex- exporter of oil. So we had fears around the supply of oil and other commodities that led to a, a, a spike in commodities. And so we've seen sort of that tradables inflation not really go away as much as we had earlier hoped. And there are some really interesting feedback loops, aren't they, aren't there, between energy and food through um, fertiliser, which is often made from gas, and and also a lot of the um, food that uh, gets produced in the world um, depends on fuel for heating or for um, or is actually an alternative for food. Um, for example, various different types of soy oil and various other things in the United States, you can use that instead of um, instead of oil to power your tractor or or um, your furnace. So there's a really interesting relationship, isn't there, between oil and gas prices and food prices, which you wouldn't expect. Yeah, absolutely. So is that sort of upward spiral that we're seeing in terms of food and fuel prices? Fertiliser was a very big um, um, concern at the beginning when, you know, Ukraine's a very big food producer, food exporter. Um, and then Russia, obviously, the oil ex- on the oil on the oil side, um, and that food production that you're saying does require ener- energy prices and en- energy input. So you did have that sort of upward spiral um, that sort of fed into each other, and, t- and that's what we're seeing now is that tradables inflation just doesn't seem to want to go away. Yeah, and it's come on top of all of these snarled up supply chains around the world and a big increase in shipping rates, uh, container rates, problems getting hold of refrigerator containers, and then these lockdowns in China through March, April, May, particularly in Shanghai and the Shanghai port, and more recently in Beijing, 
have really gummed up the works of the global supply chains. Can you talk about how much of that has sort of flowed through to uh, our, our supermarkets and the costs of things that we buy every day? Yeah, it was interesting because toward the end of last year, we actually saw this composite index that, that looks at shipping costs actually start to plateau and start to normalise, although it's still at very elevated levels. But we did sort of see it turn. Um, but with China going into lockdown, given their, I think, Omicron outbreak um, and their you know, faithful commitment to their COVID, no, co- uh, no tolerance to COVID policy, um, we've seen them lock down key trade and manufacturing hubs. And that has just exacerbated the um, global supply chain issues that we're seeing. And so it's, again, difficult for um, ports are busier now because we just have, you know, snar- snarl ups in, at, the, at the global ports. Um, so it is feeding into imported costs. It's not only difficult to get your hands on it, but you also have to pay up for um, the goods that you do receive. And we're starting to see it with um, empty shelves. And also those people who do have the few scarce imports that have come in, they have a bit of pricing power. And I'm interested in this, how some companies that have dominant positions in some markets all around the world have found themselves in a position with a bit more pricing power. How has that flowed through into New Zealand? Because it's definitely a factor in some other markets overseas. Yeah, I mean, we saw a lot of businesses turn towards this sort of just-in-case approach where they would stockpile a lot of their um, product, given how difficult it is to get their hands on it. So we did see, I guess, a lot of companies have a lot of um, um, inventories. And with that, we just have, you know, demand is still very, very strong that they're able to pass on the rising costs and um, onto the prices that consumers see, um, given how strong and robust demand is so we do that those supply chain issues are still feeding into the higher consumer prices we're seeing on the shelves today and we um, hear from the politicians about inflation they seem to know so much about the course of inflation we've got the opposition accusing the government of being the source for all of this inflation with lots of extra spending through covid and other things and then the government comes back and says oh no this is all coming from overseas there's not much we could do about it uh is it is this a case of who's right and who's wrong or or maybe maybe they're both right and both wrong i uh, yeah i think it's more of the case of the latter what you're suggesting um Fiscal spending is a component of aggregate demand, and we, as I said, we we see demand outstripping supply in the economy. So all that pandemic stimulus is feeding into the inflation picture that we're seeing today. But the tradables inflation should eventually abate um, with you know China opening back up again, um, and you know it'll be easier for ports to, well, ports will open back up again. But um, we're more concerned about. Um, the domestically generated inflation that's a little bit more sticky, so it's ho- it's a it's a slower ship to turn. So that issue of uh, stickiness, can you explain how some prices move faster than others? Because in the usual world of supply and demand and free markets, we have this idea that prices adjust almost automatically into an equilibrium. But you're suggesting maybe there are some areas where it doesn't. Yeah, so tradables inflation is less sticky to non-tradables inflation because imported inflation is um, sort of supply-driven and those supply issues can be easily resolved. And that's what we see with the whole supply chain disruptions. But non-tradables 
uh, inflation, which is domestically generated inflation, it's more sticky because its foundations are embedded in strong demand and it's harder to cool demand than it is to resolve uh, supply. And so at the heart of domestically uh, generated inflation is this rising labour costs that we're seeing. Yeah, could you sort of unpack uh, where we're seeing these rising labour costs? Because in the reported figures, at least, the numbers don't look too scary. You've got um, some measures saying three and a half, four and a half percent. The ones which strip out some of the uh, changes in the quality of labour uh, and promotions and that sort of thing, you know, down around three and a half percent. You know, inflation is running at six point nine percent. So I, I wonder where is the wage inflation coming from? It doesn't feel like in the nineteen seventies when we had you know double digit wage increases, big union deals that would thump through seven eight percent pay increases. How is it uh, looking like? How does that stickiness express itself in New Zealand? Yeah, so three, three and a half percent is the highest that we've seen in decades, actually. And you're right, it's it's not matching the rise in inflation, which is around six, you know, 6.9 percent. So we are sort of running backwards in that regard. But um, three and three and a half percent is the highest. But these, um, the rise in wage growth is really being underpinned by how incredibly tight our labour market is. Um, and it's that we have the demand for labour has been, remains robust, but the supply um, is obviously fading given that we're limited to just homegrown talent. And now with the borders opening up, that's reducing the, the supply even more. Um, so this imbalance is what's right, uh, was, is what's supporting um, higher wage growth. But three to when you're comparing three to 6.9%, it's obviously not matching the rising uh, living costs. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25, 26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today.
So one of the worries that people have is that we're going to head back to a stagflationary era, a lot like in the 1970s when we had a high inflation, but also relatively high unemployment. And you talked about the wage price spirals. You see the sorts of um, big deals going through with wages going up fast and then decision makers on prices going, right, well, my wages are going up, so I have to put my prices up, and then the wages, it all becomes a bit of a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. How, though, how different, though, is our labour market now versus in the 1970s? And are we likely to see that sort of stagflation again? Yeah, we're definitely going to see a rise in wage growth. Um, that is the, the forecast, just given how tight the labour market is and how um, demand remains really robust. But we're, we were forecasting for wage growth to reach 4% by the end of the year, which is by no means comparable to the 1970s. Um, a big change between the 1970s and today is that we have um, these employment, these sort of labour laws that were introduced in the 1990s that sort of demolished unionisation. Now, one of the really surprising big components in the 6.9% inflation we saw in the March quarter from a year ago, that 32-year high, was a big component for what they call housing and household services, which don't appear to be linked at all to food or to energy costs uh, and maybe not even wages. So where is that increased housing costs coming from in New Zealand? Yeah, the, the main driver to that rise in housing costs is construction costs. Um, it's this, and what's driving construction costs higher, which rose, I think, 18% in the year. What's driving that higher is the labour and material shortages that the construction, fa- is face, construction sector is facing, um, probably facing the most severely of all uh, industries. And so when you couple, you know, supply shortages with, such a uh, strong demand for housing that's a potent co- cocktail for rising um, rising prices for housing. And at the same time as plenty of demand, at least last year and in 2020, for new houses with uh, plenty of lending going on and people um, looking to uh, buy a new home, um, maybe they haven't spent a lot on going overseas, they've got a bit more money for a deposit. There was plenty of activity, but I wonder, with this big jump in prices of a lot of things, how consumers respond. Is there going to be what they call a demand destruction shock, where, in a way, the inflation cures itself as people um, start to demand less of things or different things? Yeah, inflation is really stretching household budgets quite thin. Um, It's more, it's getting more and more expensive, not only to buy, you know, your sort of discretionary spending items like a new e-bike or a new car, but also just, you know, your your necessities, food and fuel. Uh, it's getting very uh, expensive to buy those things. So there will be some pullback in demand given how expensive prices have become, but also with the Reserve Bank um, intervening here to try and stop inflation, they're having to lift interest rates. And that's in order to moderate demand. So that's another factor weighing on demand. Um, so, And that's sort of the idea is to cool demand with higher interest rates. Yeah, and that's why inflation is so interesting, I think, because not only is it a phenomenon of rising prices, which affect the cost of things that we buy every day and might even affect our wages, but it flows through the financial system into the form of higher interest rates. And that starts to affect 
asset prices. And the great irony of what we're seeing at the moment is there's, there's inflation, inflation everywhere, apart from in the housing market, <laughs> where, where house prices are forecast to drop anywhere from 10 to 20%, depending on, on who you are. Uh, we know that inflation often triggers a rise in interest rates, but why is it that we're seeing asset values, so house prices, share prices, why are we seeing those drop? Yeah, we're seeing sort of a, a rotation away from riskier assets when we see interest rates rise. So bonds, government bonds become more, I guess, relatively more attractive and we're seeing that rotation towards government bonds. Um, and so that's why we're seeing equities slump, um, especially with the expectation that the Fed is going to hike even more aggressively than they um, have signaled. So there's that fear um, of right, rates being even higher. So we're kind of seeing um, investors move away from risk assets and housing is another asset, obviously. And here um, we're seeing we're expecting um, a sort of 10 to 11 percent decline in house prices as well as as the Reserve Bank um, tightens monetary policy. Yeah, because we've only really just sort of started on this. The Reserve Bank began uh, increasing its official cash rate in October and a lot of the fixed mortgage rates that people um, pay, they have also been rising because they're more closely connected to wholesale interest rates, which are rising in expectation of central banks tightening. But uh, how high could the Reserve Bank increase the official cash rate over the next year or so? And how might that flow through into mortgage rates that people are paying at the moment, be it floating mortgage rates and some of the longer term fixed mortgage rates, which we seem to love so much in New Zealand? Yeah, well, we're expecting them to continue hiking and we see a, a peak in the official cash rate of around 3.5% by the end of the year. They've signaled that they want to take it a little bit further to around 4% the start of next year. So we've still got some ways to go in terms of where the official cash rate will eventually land. Um, and that could push, it's pushing wholesale rates now already. And that's making bank funding costs more expensive. And so banks are passing that on to the retail rates that we're seeing today. Mortgage rates could could end up, you know, around 6 to 7% by the time that the OCR um, peaks. But we don't see the Reserve Bank having to go all the way to 4%. We expect demand to already moderate before they reach um, 4%, um, and that'll stop them from having to go even further. But definitely into, we expect the Reserve Bank to take the cash rate into true tightening territory, which is above 2%, in order to really cool demand. And uh, once the Reserve Bank acts and central banks overseas act, how long do you think it's going to take to get inflation back down to that area around 2% that uh, we think is safe? Yeah, it, it'll take a while given how high inflation has risen. You know, the higher you, the higher you um, inflation is, the longer it'll take to get back to 2%. We're expecting sort of the imported inflation to eventually abate and quite quickly when the you know, the world open back, opens back up, but it's a domestically generated inflation that um, threatens a more extended period of inflation. Um, we're expecting inflation to fall back to around um, 2% by the second half of next year. So it's still elevated for a relatively long time. Yeah, because there are some feedback loops in here that are quite interesting. As the Reserve Bank increases the official cash rate and as mortgage rates rise, as, as you say, we're seeing a fall in house prices. And for those people who um, see their homes as a representation of their wealth and therefore 
it can encourage them to spend, or if the wealth is falling, reduce, reduce spending, that wealth effect could be a bit of a feedback feedback loop into the economy. Yeah, absolutely. And the converse is what we saw um, last year when we had such a strong housing boom, market boom, that really supported household consumption. Um, and that's the reason why we're at such um, high levels of you know demand already. But now we're seeing sort of with house prices falling, that negative wealth effect will become more and more um, significant in terms of cooling demand. So we'll start to see consumption fall back um, and that'll have some impact on demand and then and inflation. I'm wondering also whether we'll see um, a recession because there's a risk here, isn't it, that in the process of trying to crash down on inflation, um, the central banks of the world, in fact, engineer a recession. Uh, can we manage a soft landing here? Yeah, that seems to be the debate is a hard landing versus a soft landing. And unfortunately, history hasn't been very kind and kind in that regard. Um, but the one difference, if we're talking, if we're comparing to the 1970s, which did ev- in, you know, lead into a recession. The one difference today is that we have a very tight labour market, a very strong labour market, and that should continue to protect household incomes and employment um, and should, you know, avoid a nasty um, income shock. And so that's insulating our economy for now. Um, so the probability of a recession is obviously not zero, um, especially with every rate rise, the risk of a recession rises itself. But the labour market is one bright spot here. And for those people who are planning their businesses and their own personal financial lives over the next year or so, what are the variables they should watch for that could change the outlook? We've got a view on what we know right now, but as the variables change, maybe it's the war in Ukraine, maybe it's the lockdowns in China, maybe it's the housing market here overseas, what are the levers or the the variables that um, people should watch to um, adjust their views? I think consumption, just how much we're spending would be a very, it would be very interesting indicator there uh, because that's the, that's the indicator of demand in the economy. And once we see demand starting to cool, once we see consumption starting to cool, it's an indication that demand in the economy is starting to cool. Interest rates would have to, you know, they'll be nearing their peak They'll be nearing the top of how far they'll go, and it'll sort of show that uh, demand and supply in the economy are starting to balance out, and we get more sustainable price rises um, and some more sustainable growth. So the sort of canary in the mine, if you like, that things are slowing down correctly, is the spending figures on um, retail trade, electronic uh, card figures, the um, electronic debit and credit card spending figures that come through every month. Yeah, that'll be very key to watch. It's just showing how much people, you know, people's appetite to go out and spend. We'll see it slow down in the near term given, you know, the pressures on household consumption, but that's to be expected. So Mary Jo, you've been um, studying economics and uh, working as an economist for a long time, but all through that time, Inflation was a non-issue and in some cases too low. How does it feel as an economist to suddenly see inflation of, you know, seven, eight percent? Yeah, it's a, it's a first in my time to see it above, you know, one and a half percent. It's been interesting. It's to, to see it different from how I've studied it. 
it's been interesting. Um, but more, I think most interesting is how reserve banks are responding to it. Because I haven't seen inflation this low, I haven't seen um, policy tightening as much as what's happening today. So it's it's fascinating to see how the economy is changing. So this is going out uh, on a Friday, the 17th of June. And we're going to see the Reserve Bank over the next few weeks make its next decision. What should people look for? Higher interest rates. So we're expecting <laughs> another 50 basis point hike in the official cash rate to take it to 2.5%. And we'll see mortgage rates rise uh, alongside that. Fantastic. Mary Jo Vergara, an economist with Kiwi Bank, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks for having me. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin Off Podcast Network, together with Kiwi Bank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi. Kia Butler here, podcast manager at the Spin Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.